0: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. It's Jason here, and today we've got the privilege of sitting down with someone who I think is among a few leaders who are most shaping the imagination and thinking of this next generation of pastors here in Canada and around the world. And that's John Mark Comer from Portland, Oregon. He's the pastor of teaching and vision at Bridgetown Church. He's the author of Garden City, Loveology, God Has a Name, and his most recent book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I just loved this conversation that we were able to have with John Mark. He he introduced this idea of holy uncertainty and and why as leaders today, more than ever, we need to embrace it. We talked a lot about looking at the shadows side of our leadership and what it means for us to consider the effect of our own journey as leaders with God and how it impacts those that we lead. Hey, before we jump into today's conversation, I just wanted to let you know that we're really committed to trying to give more and more opportunities for you as the listener to feed into these conversations. So big thank you to those of you who submitted questions for our conversation coming up with Pete Hughes and really excited about that conversation. And the next interview that we're doing is with Danielle Strickland, who's, I mean, Danielle is an incredible leader. She started ministries like Amplify Peace, Brave Global, and the Women Speakers Collective. She's one of the probably most sought after speakers around the world and she's Canadian and we love her so much and we just love for you to be able to feed into this conversation. So if you've got questions that you want us to include in our conversation with Danielle Strickland, you can submit those questions on our Instagram at churchleadersnetwork and on our website ccln.ca. Hey, and just a quick note before we jump into today's episode, at the end of the interview with John Mark, he shares a number of like book recommendations and I know if I was listening, I'd probably be trying to pause the episode and write them down with my pen, but I would be difficult because I might be driving on my commute. So what we did is we created a PDF with all of the book recommendations with links so it's easy for you to find and that's available at ccln.ca on our blog. Oh and we had John Mark with us a number of months ago in Vancouver doing an open lecture and then a leaders intensive and we've got the video and audio for that time together on the website so you want to check it out there. So with all of that said let's jump into today's interview with John Mark Comer.
1: Welcome to the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. We want to serve church leaders and their teams by sharing honest and thoughtful conversations about pastoral leadership. In this podcast, we were exploring the question, what does it mean to lead people in the way of Jesus in the midst of today's world? Let's jump into today's conversation.
0: Well, hey, John Mark, thanks for being with us today. Appreciate you making it time to be on the podcast.
2: It's always a pleasure to have any kind of conversation with you, Jason.
0: Oh, you're so kind. Um, The reality is, is everyone listening is uh, thinking and experiencing life in light of COVID and shifts to our rhythms. And I just wanted to start by asking, as you're processing this time as a church leader, as a dad, as a friend, as an apprentice to Jesus, what are some of the big questions that you're wrestling with?
2: Well, I mean, in all honesty, I think, sure, it's not that unique, but as a pastor and church leader, the question I'm wrestling with is what in the world does the next few years look like, and how do you lead a church if you can't have Sunday gatherings, and in the meantime, can't even have house churches, you know? We could pivot pretty fast to a house church model the way our church is set up, but we can't even do that. And how do you pastor people over the internet and how does that not just devolve way too fast into the worst of attractional kind of consumer Christianity Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So there's all those questions that consume, you know, a lion's share of my mind and imagination. But then there's the deeper questions um, that are a lot less scary to me and where, where they're a little bit more about ang- less about anxiety and more about possibility. And that is, like, I think this is the greatest chance for spiritual formation in the history of my church, at least. You know, like, more mm. good could come out of the, When I think about the future of, like, Bridgetown Church, the tax-exempt organization and the, you know, brand is such a gross word, you know, that the church... I get a little, like, in all honesty, there are moments where I have high anxiety, like, what, like, what will our church even look like in two years? But when I think about the people of Bridgetown Church that theologically are Bridgetown Church, and the good that could come out of the next year or two, my heart is just full of hope, you know, I think, Mm. I was listening to this Jim Collins interview a while back, it was a long form interview with Jim Collins. And I'm not, I, don't, I rarely listen to business leaders. I'm not like that lead pastor. I'm trying to get out of leadership, not better at it. <laughs> so I don't do a lot of that, but it was a great interview. And at one point he said that every creative and knowledge worker, in his opinion, all of their work is built around one central question. And he said what his was. And I, I love that paradigm. And I immediately, like, I knew exactly what my question was. My question is, how do people change? Um, specifically mm. through the Christian lens, how do we become more like Jesus? In the language of our Eastern Orthodox friends or the ancient church theosis or um, deification, or we would say Christ-likeness, how, like, if that's the telos of the spiritual journey, that's the end goal. Like, what is is there a map? Is there cartography for that spiritual journey? What is the process by which we become more like God, more godly? And um, because I think most of us don't give a lot of critical thinking to that, we just carry a set of assumptions into that. And we Mm. import kind of Western thinking or Cartesian thinking or megachurch thinking or seminarian thinking, whatever into that and often where we live with a chronic sense of frustration because we don't grow or change or see healing and breakthrough and renewal in the people that we pastor anywhere close to the degree that we want. So that's mm. my deeper question. That that's, that was my question before COVID and it will likely be my question after COVID. And um, that's where I actually have the most hope right now. I just think so mm. much good could come in growth, maturity, freedom, stripping of attachments, joy, peace, emotional resolve, character, Christlikeness. I just think there's so much potential right now.
0: Hmm. I think one of the things that have challenged me personally listening to you talk about personal formation, but even church leadership is I feel like it's a different framing of the vision of a local church or even the work of a pastor. And like, if I'm honest, I feel like, Maybe we would never say this out loud, but often I think it deep down maybe that my job is to grow something, yeah. to expand an organization and do good in the city and all those things. Yeah. But I feel like this question of like the, this vision of forming people is something that comes through when you share. And I just wonder, has that always been the key question or has that been a shift for you? And tell us a bit about that journey of that becoming the framework by which you think about your work as a pastor
2: yeah i mean first off yes that is the framework so i think the true north for me is galatians chapter four you know paul's line my dear children for whom i am again in the pains of childbirth until christ is formed in you and that's where the language of spiritual formation comes Mm. from and just that word picture paul is like a mother Um, Or like a father, but I mean, really, it's like the imagery is of a a mother's womb. And I'm like at labor, like I labor and I sweat and I bleed until Christ is formed in you. And um, I just think that if you had to put the role of a pastor into one verse, it's that, it's Galatians chapter four. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, how I got there was through pain. I mean, I think that's how we get to most of the best things in life, you know, is through pain. That was the open window in my heart. When I started, I was a crazy type A, ambitious young leader who basically just wanted to be like a more orthodox Rob Bell, you know? <laughs> I basically just wanted, like, to grow a super big church, and I wanted it to be cool, and I wanted to be a killer Bible teacher, you know? That was basically – and I'm sure I had, like, deeper desires for spiritual renewal and all of that, you know, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I remember I would say some of it is not new. Some of it like from early on, I remember when I was in my early twenties, I would say, I feel like my calling in life is to take Christians and help them become disciples. Um, And then Mm -hmm. when I later read that very line from Willard, I was like, Oh my gosh, you're saying what I've been like saying better than me, you know, for years, like that's my heart. I'm really more of a teacher, Pastor than I am, evangelist, apostle, and I, I have great respect for that. Um, so some of that, I think, the seed bed was there in my heart, but no, it never, it did not really show up in my body or my leadership mm-hmm. until much later. Until I achieved quote success, and then the failure that often comes with success, and hit burnout and crisis of limitations, as it's called, and um, existential angst and early midlife crisis and All of that like brought me, and really, I hit this place of kind of a a plateau in my spiritual formation. You know, early on, I've been following Jesus for a very long time, and in my teenage years, in college, and early twenties, I know that spiritual formation is not linear, but I did have a sense of like forward motion of growth, Mm -hmm. and the that's that's very biblical language, growth. I felt like year over year, I was growing like deeper and stronger and wider and becoming more like Jesus. But then in about my mid twenties, I just felt like I hit this plateau. The moment that my apprenticeship to Jesus hit up against some of the like really deep stuff that's in my family of origin and epigenetics. If you know anything about that science, it's literally in my genetic code that ingrained habits of sin, that we often just call personality, you know, or temperament, this stuff that's so deep, it's literally neurobiologically wired into my body and my musculature. All of the sudden, the way that I was following Jesus was almost Mm. ineffective. It was like a BB gun against a tank. It was just like willpower against this was just, in a theology and willpower against me was not working. And so I think um, then under the pressure of leadership and, and the stress of all of that and just life and getting older and the hardships of life, even though I've had a relatively easy life, I began to feel like not only was I no longer progressing, but I was regressing now. And, um, and then I began to realize that our church was full of people like me that kind of grew up to a certain point and then hit this spot. Of kind of plateau or even decline or kind of they hit Mm -hmm. a wall and 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 it was not that i did not or they did not want to grow i did it's not like i wasn't trying to grow i was if anything trying too hard it's that i didn't really know how to move forward and grow in full cooperation with the spirit of jesus so that i think has really put me on a very different trajectory asking a very the questions i'm asking now as I'm nearing 40 are so different than the questions Mm. I was asking when I was nearing 30,
1: you know, Mm.
0: recently hearing you speak to a room full of pastors, you quoted uh, Ruth Haley Barton. And the quote was this, the best gift you can give the people you lead is your transforming self. Oh, can you speak to that a little bit?
2: Yeah. This is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And it's so funny. It's, it's bad grammar, but, uh, proper. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like I had to think about it for a minute. You're, the best gift you give the people you lead is your transforming self. You're transforming. Self. Yeah. That's a, a weird, that's weird grammar. But we're never transformed. It's not like, hey, mm. go do this thing, go through Ruth Levy Barton's, you know, two year program, which is amazing and I highly recommend. And then you are transformed and now lead at No, it's your transforming and always transforming. You're never there. It's a theology of journey, not destination. And, Every year forward, the dream is that we become more free and more at ease in our own body and more full of genuine agape, self-giving love and more at peace, mm-hmm. and more of a non anxious presence and more joyful, more just full of Trinitarian inner life and delight year over year over year. And I really think that's the best gift. You know, Willard used to say the main thing that God gets out of your life and the main thing that you get out of your life is the person you become. And um, I think you could say the same thing. The main thing that your church or the people you lead get out of your life is the person you become. It's not the consumables of ministry. It's not your teaching or your sermons or your strategy or your events or your conferences or your buildings or your programs. That's all good stuff. I'm not down on any of that. I give a lot of time, some of that, but the main thing that those are just, conduits for who god is making you to be to come through you know that so funny um i'm a charismatic but i take issue with the phrase spiritual gift i think it's really bad language that's unbiblical that's results that comes from um what i think most scholars would agree is a not not a good translation of paul's language in corinthians most of the time and like the classic spiritual gift passages If you actually read them carefully they don't use the language of spiritual gifts romans 12 writes about gifts but there's no adjective spiritual um corinthians 12 writes about spirituals and and corinthians 14 it's pneumaticos in greek it's most literally spirituals or spiritual things but the word gifts is not there the one time that spiritual and gift are used together by paul are in romans 1 where he calls himself the spiritual gift He says, I long to see you that I may impart a spiritual gift to you. And he means himself. He means like, I want to come to you and I want the spirit of God to, to, to gift something to you through me. And that's such a, you know, that sounds egotistical, but I think it's actually humility. It's saying Mm. that what we have to give is just the, the, the small fraction of Jesus that we get to mirror out through our personhood, you know? So that's a long way of saying, I think character and leadership matters. I think just time and and quiet prayer with Jesus and who we become matter 10,000 times more than anything else in leadership. Hmm.
0: I think about what we were saying earlier about like, you know, a vision for pastoral leadership. Like obviously we want, we believe we're called to form people, but sometimes our models are built on an old apparatus or a, a, that work out towards a whole different outcome. And I feel like my work models, like my day-to-day in and out, like I believe what you're saying, but the way I've organized my life doesn't actually live into it. I live as if people need me to build programs for them, better talks, all these things. And so what does it actually look like when that belief trickles down into how we structure our lives our organizations, even how we mobilize our staff to become? a transforming self. Wonder what that looks like in practice.
2: Yeah. Are you talking about like for the individual leader or more for church life?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I guess what I'm mean to say is this is if the vision is to really believe that the best gift I can give my congregation is a transformed self, how does that play out in the way I organize my day-to-day life as a pastor, as a
1: leader?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't have a brilliant answer to that. I think, you know, what the church has said for 2,000 years up until very recently in Protestantism is um, rule of life. That was Hmm. the, that's the ancient historic church answer to that question is you craft a rule of life that is conducive both to your personality and to your cultural context, the city you live in and to your day and age and era you know um of kind of late western world and or particularly to a covid 19 kind of crisis you know and um that rule of life has to be responsive and open-ended and not legalistic it has to have some mutability to it but basically you you come up with a trellis to the vine and that's where that language came from you know um, rule of the ancient latin word was regula and there's dispute over it, but most scholars argue that it was the word used in Latin for the trellis in a, under a vine in a vineyard. So if you've ever been to a winery, think of a beautiful vineyard, you think of a vine, a plant, underneath it is always a trellis. Mm. And that's because without this trellis, this kind of support structure to undergird it, a vine will um, languish, it might even die, it will bear a fraction of the fruit that it has the potential to bear. It will be vulnerable to wild animals, to damage, to human beings. And you know the ancients said, all right, Jesus' core teaching was John 15, abide in the vine and you will bear much fruit. That's Jesus' most in-depth teaching on spiritual formation. And he's basically saying that we bear fruit which Paul later defines in his riffing on John 15 in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. We bear that fruit um, through living relational connection to God mm. by abiding and resting and making our home in the inner life of the Trinity itself. And So that's a, at a metaphoric level. And the ancients said, all right, practically the way we do that is we come up with our rule of life. We need a regular, we need a trellis. Just like a vine needs a trellis, to abide in the vine, we need a support structure, a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that enable us to make our home in God and come to rest Hmm. in God and really live from a, a relational connection to the inner life of God himself and Father and Son and Spirit. So that's like not a new answer. That's what people have been saying for 2000 years. But I just think that's the answer. You have to come up with a rule of life that is specific to the West and specific to the city you live in, specific to your personality and specific to your role as a pastor. So there's certain things in my rule of life that would make no sense if I was a plumber or a journalist or an entrepreneur, but they make a lot of sense for me as a teaching pastor. And that would be different if I was a different type of pastor, you know? And so, um, there's no one size fits all approach. There are best practices like Sabbath or morning prayer, life in community. But yeah, I mean, I think we structure a rule of life and we have to make sure that relationships are a key part of that rule of life because we mm-hmm. change in relationship from relationship by relationship, both with Jesus, And with Jesus people and to to bifurcate the two is, I think a a misnomer and a fool's errand. Hmm. So our rule of life has to include real deep relationships, which is often hard for pastors. Pastors are often social, but not relational or they're extroverted, but they're not actually in deep mutual, no little to no power, differential mutual accountability relationships of self-giving love. And man, that, that is if you you have to have that as a base with Jesus and with a few mm. other people
0: how has that journey been for you has that been something that has always been there you've had to work at cultivating those kind of relationships in your life as a leader
1: oh
2: no i've come into it much later in life i mean i'm really introverted and grew up homeschooled and then ended up as a mega church pastor really young i was very comfortable with the kind of like alienate yourself from people be, you know, do your own thing, consider yourself an exception to the rule, you know, Um, I was very comfortable in that space. Now, it was really toxic and unhealthy and was mutating me in ways that were not Jesus-like at all. But no, that was my, that's kind of, I think, the natural inertia of my personality. So I've had to really kind of retrain my relational musculature to really um, live in deep, long-term, intentional, vulnerable um, relationships, you know, mm-hmm. and it's been so life-giving and so healing. And so I'm, I'm not a social person. I don't hang out with people a lot um, um, chronically, you know, because of my life as a pastor, have too many relationships, you know, um, but I have a, just a few people. That I And I I think I read a recent thing that said you can't have more than nine to 12 people that actually know you, know your shadow side, know you as you actually are. That's about the max for anybody is nine to 12 people. And Mm -hmm. um, so I've just worked really hard to cultivate a small circle of, a much wider circle of friends, but a small circle of people where I can just really show my shadow to and be safe. And I think that's so important, the more leadership, the more you're in the public eye, the more people look to you in Jungian framework, the wider that gap is between your ego and your shadow side. Um, Mm. Or if if you're not familiar with Jungian's framework that between that kind of image that you project to the world, both to win other people's approval and because you want to be that person and the shadow meaning who you actually are good and bad. Some, Some of the shadow is sin. Some of the shadow is just stuff you don't like about yourself. Like I wish I, you know, came from old money and went to Stanford and whatever. So I can pretend like I am and I can quote people like that, but I'm not actually that guy. So it's just some of it's just who you actually are. And like the, the with, with any kind of leadership, notoriety, that gap between your ego and your shadow, between the image you present to the world and who you actually are, it grows. And that's the mm. breeding ground for neurosis, sin, addiction, self-destructive behavior and that's where we harm other people this is why like the the most extreme example of this is celebrities and you why Hmm. there's so many celebrities go off the rail it's because they have this ego that's like stratospheric it's like it's so stratospheric whatever sorry whatever the adjective is it's it's out of the atmosphere They have yeah. this image, you know, but then who they actually are is just a normal person. They're just Justin Bieber or whoever the, like they're just a person with a person's mm-hmm. flaws and idiosyncrasies and wounds and struggles. And so that's why so many celebrities just implode, even though they have all the success and wealth and fame, because they can't, that gap is, is untenable. And the celebrities that mm-hmm. do well tend to have like their brother is their videographer and their uncle is their manager. It's like where these relationships where there's low power differential and they're both accountability but also love and affection. So that's the extreme example. You know, pastors aren't celebrities, but we experience a tiny bit of that where we have mm. this kind of public thing out there in front of a church. And often the gap grows between that public image and the shadow, the reality of who we are. And we often actually want to grow because we don't want people to see who we are. So it's so important that we have some people to keep us grounded who will both call out our shadow and also keep loving us through our shadow. So we Mm. can experience both freedom and healing and safety. Those relationships become more important over time, not less.
1: Mm.
0: Earlier you used this phrase, um, holy uncertainty. And really speaking about this season around COVID-19, not knowing the future. But I think that what this season's exposed for me is, I've never really known the future, but I've sometimes lived as a leader as if, you know, I've got all these six month, eight month, three year, four year plans yeah. and then all it's stripped away. And actually I think there's a part of me that it's for my personality that loves the adventure. And I've actually had to come clean with my heart and be like, man, is there something about me that gets an adrenaline rush off everything that's changing? But then there's another thing I've looked inside myself and seen is like, oh man, I depend on a certain control of the future in a weird way. And it's really exposed just some needs in my heart and just would love to hear you speak to this idea of how do we as pastors lead in times of uncertainty? And what's this, what's the heart stuff that's going on that makes that so challenging?
2: Yeah. Gosh, man. That's, I think that's the conversation right now. We need to be having, you know, they say the best doctors, if you get cancer, Cancer is one of the only, I'm allowed to back up. Western middle class people have a very low tolerance for uncertainty. Hmm. We're used to feeling people that grew up in poverty know how to thrive in uncertainty. People that grew up in a war zone, um, our grandparents' generation that, that grew up in World War II or before that, the Great Depression, they're actually much less anxious. They tend to be much happier, calmer more comfortable, more relaxed, because they know how to navigate uncertainty. Gen Z that has grown up even more than millennials in the greatest season of affluence in the history of the world is the most anxious generation of history, if the data is to be believed, you know? So um, there's, there's, a, there's a reciprocal relationship there between uncertainty and actually becoming people of mm. peace and certainty and actually becoming people of anxiety, because certainty is an illusion. It's not real life, it's not reality, it's fantasy. And um, so Westerners aren't used to it. The one kind of common leveler across the socioeconomic divide of Western culture is cancer. And most of us know somebody who has been through cancer or had a family or friend, family member or friend go through cancer. And um, what I'm told, I've not been through that experience, but what I'm told by many of my friends is that there's a lot of frustration often with the medical system. And I'm just, cause the level of uncertainty, like literally will you live Mm -hmm. or will you die is so high. And what I'm told on a regular basis is the best doctors are not the ones who are the smartest and make the most predictions. The best doctors are the ones who say, here's a few different ways it could go, but to tell you the truth, I don't know, but I'm with
1: Hmm. you. Hmm. And
2: I think there's a lot that leaders can learn right now from doctors. I think the best leaders right now are not the ones that are attempting to make predictions. They're Hmm. the ones that are saying, here's a few different ways it could go, but I don't know, and that's okay. Jesus is with us, and we're together in this. And you know, um, there's a lot attempt. There's a lot of grasping for control right now, which makes sense. Like control is at the root of the human predicament. I think it's at the root of spiritual formation, or or said in the inverse, it's at the root of what's wrong with the human condition. And control, for the most part, is an illusion. And control manifests like a few different things. Prediction is one. Um, manifestation is an attempt to grasp for control so to say this is what's going to happen um when reality it's an educated guess at best Mm. that's an attempt to grasp for control when people say the church will never be the same which i'm hearing a lot of well who knows that who said that like how do we that's an attempt for control that's all that is Mm. People feel more in control if they can say the church will never be the same. When, when the days of big churches and buildings are over or online churches, the future. Now, maybe that's true. Maybe, I don't know, but that's an attempt at control. Most likely that's a prediction mm-hmm. because if we can predict the future, we can feel like we're in control of it. Now, maybe the church will never be the same. Maybe churches will never want to come back to gatherings. I, I don't think so. I think it'll actually have a limited effect on the future architecture of the church. think met nine 11, devastating we fly on airplanes more now than we ever have before and we just get annoyed by tsa pre-check you know so i think it'll take a bit but I, I would be surprised if it was the end we not like the church hasn't been through plagues again plagues in the past 100 years ago the spanish flu we still built buildings after that actually churches got bigger not smaller so i don't know maybe this is the end of mega church. maybe this is the beginning of digital church i sure don't think so and i sure don't hope so but i don't know but I think mm. when people claim they know, um, again, I'm, I'm grateful for really intelligent people and futurists that can make predictions and educated guesses, but I think it needs to be held as this is an educated guess and mm. I, I could be totally wrong. Um, somebody out there is right about what will happen to the economy, about how long it'll be till we can gather as churches again, about what the future of the church is, but what that psychology of gathering will be. Somebody out there is right. I just don't know who it is. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of smart people all making very different predictions right now based on very little data. Anger is another example of people that are struggling to live in uncertainty. Um, scapegoating is a great example. Uh, we scapegoat people. In my country right now, it's President Trump. Or if you're a conservative, it's the media and the Democratic Party or Democratic governors. Because if we can find somebody to blame, that's another way that we can feel in control of the situation. Like, oh, it's their fault it's China's fault or Trump's fault or the Democratic fault, Party's fault or this governor's part or the media's fault. If we can find somebody to blame, then again, we can feel in control. But it is a fool's errand to attempt to feel in control of anything <laughs> beyond like the basics in COVID-19 in particular as a leader. So all that to say, I think, you know, the mystics and the desert fathers and mothers have long made much of what they called holy uncertainty. This, mm. which is kind of the end goal of God stripping us of our attachments and our idols, and us coming to the true place of self-denial, the cross, yieldedness over to the Father and his wisdom and his love. And it's an ability to, as Peterson would translate it, to live freely and lightly, to just kind of mm. have this spring in your step. Daryl Johnson, who was on here recently, he embodies that holy uncertainty. I don't need mm-hmm. another future. I don't need it's Jesus, you know. Take no thought for tomorrow, sufficient for the days, it's own troubles. James four. You know, you're a fool to say tomorrow we'll go to this city and do such and such a thing on this. You know, we should just say if the Lord wills, all such boasting mm. is evil. It's evil because it keeps us from doing the good that we often know God has set before us to do today because it doesn't fit with our plan. Which again, uh, I listened to another Eugene Peterson lecture recently and he said that planning in secular society is taking over the role of hoping and eschatology has been replaced by strategy and Mm -hmm. and i thought that's so profound we make plans to get to our preferred future but for the cycle of jesus we surrender to god's preferred future for Mm -hmm. our life and his pastoring of our life so i just think right now the most important thing that we need to do in our own formation is release the illusion of control and yield to God and make peace. And one of the most important things that we can do for the people we lead is just lovingly say, there's a few ways it could go, we don't know. And that's okay that we don't know. God is mm-hmm. with us, I'm with you, we're in this together and whatever comes, comes, it's gonna be okay. And I just think that's, I think that's the most helpful, I think, I could be wrong, that's just my opinion. I think that's the most helpful leadership posture right now as we, as we kind of move forward in holy uncertainty.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: When the COVID pandemic began to grow in the States and in Canada around the same time and new restrictions were released about gathering at Bridgetown, the church you lead, you guys released a few different, um, initiatives. Uh, you guys, articulated a rule of life for this time and released a daily um, podcast. Can you speak to those two things that you did pastorally for your people and those around you in light of all that was going on?
2: Yeah. Um, well, on rule of life, you know, um, don't get me talking too long, but if you study the history <laughs> of, of rule of life, it goes all the way back, you know, arguably to the first century and to the you could argue as a rule of life, but for sure to the second century but it was really popularized by St. Benedict in the sixth century. Either way, it grew up as a counterbalance to the decline of the Roman empire. As the empire was falling into chaos, um, the church moved toward monasticism and a rule of life and fixed hour prayer. It moved toward order and a culture of chaos. It moved toward, you know, community and a culture that was falling apart at the seams. You think you go to old Europe and you see some of the uh, churches and monasteries that look like castles and they have like turrets on the top and a moat. And you're like, how far from the heart of Jesus, who is eating and drinking with sinners, do you have to be to put like a turret on top of your church or a moat around your, your monastery? But then you imagine, oh, the Roman Empire was basically a failed state and it was devolving into warlords and violence and crime. Imagine trying to pastor a church right now in the Congo or in Mogadishu or in Syria or in any kind of a failed state. You would probably at least have like walls around your compound and bars on your window and some security guards. That's how most of the world outside of the West often operates. We don't say that's unpriced like We say, yeah, that's just kind of smart. Don't kill them if they break in, but at least like warm people, you know? So I think um, the point is, in a time of chaos, I I think the pastoral impulse is to move toward order. So that was the rule of life. And it has to be pliable and adaptable, because obviously our life right now is very different. This is not, hopefully not a new normal. I don't like it when people say new normal. I don't think this is a new normal. I think this is a season that we're in. And so how do we thrive in this season and not just survive? And how do we let Jesus do a deep work in us, not just kind of get through it, grin it, and bear it, and endure it? And yeah, the other move was toward a a daily podcast. And that was, um, honestly, the heart behind that was I was just in prayer those first couple of days. And I felt that to the best of my ability to discern, like the spirit was stirring in my heart to over communicate, not under communicate, and to prioritize pastoral presence over content curation. Hmm. So um, I'm a perfectionist. I would rather teach two or three times a, a month and have it be really good. Right now, I'm teaching about five times a week. And it's not nearly as good, <laughs> a lot of it, as normal. But I don't have the time to hone it and edit it and perfect it that I would like. And I don't think that's bad, actually. But um, I just feel like what people need is pastoral presence, and one way to do that is over the internet. And I'm just, I'm just trying to help people ground themselves in God and really abide in Jesus through this. So our little daily podcast is more of like a prayer guide, mm. you know, than it is anything else. So. Yeah, it's just that, Um, you know, I read uh, that book Originals by Adam Grant a number of years ago, and I didn't love the book in all honesty, but my main takeaway was he has a a lot of sociological actually research, and he argues that most leaders under communicate by a margin of 10, meaning Mm. you need to say something 10 more times than you think you do Mm -hmm. to actually enculturate it in the people that you lead. And so I've taken that to heart and it's um, parts of it I don't like because I start to feel repetitive and boring and like I'm giving the same sermons and, you know, a part of that is actually really important that you just call people, call people, call people to the way of Jesus. And so, yeah, right now we're just trying to be really present with people for as long Mm. as this lasts. Mm -hmm. I say present with people. What I mean is like calling people on the phone and producing podcasts. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, I
0: feel like there's a lot of content going out, like so much content. And I think about the relationship going back to the beginning of the conversation of you know, this vision of a church, um, of actually forming people. What, is it, what does that look like now or even outside of this time to use content, sermons, communication piece, whatever it is, to actually move people towards formative work versus information transfer?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Content's up. Podcasting's actually down right now Mm -hmm. um, for all the reasons that you would imagine. It's down by a significant amount, actually, because podcasting is basically a function of multitasking, you know, and you do it while you're on your morning commute. Well, don't have that anymore. You do it when you're at the gym. Oh, wait, don't have that anymore, (laughs) you know. You do it while you're at the airport. Oh wait, don't have that anymore. So, um, I think it's very different type of podcasting that is going on right now or content creation. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not brilliant, Jason, and we're still trying we're still asking all of the questions. All I know is that I, I think that whatever content we create right now needs to be heavy on the, um, the, the, the praxis side of it. So like I do all of my teaching through, uh, Dallas Willard's paradigm of VIM. Are you familiar with his acronym, VIM? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Vision, intention, means, any kind of human change in general, from losing 10 pounds to becoming a person of love. You need vision of of a way that you could be human, of a way that life could be different. You need intention. You have to actually make a moment of decision as the listener, as the, you know, whatever. Like, I want to change, I'll do whatever it takes to change. But then you need means. You need some actual virtual disciplines or practices or so if you want to, you know, like I just, I I need to lose a little bit of weight right now. And I'm training for a a marathon in October that will likely get canceled, but I'm still training for it. So first thing I need is I need a vision of myself as somebody who's 10 pounds thinner and can run 26.2 miles. Right. But a vision is not enough. I can sit around and be like, Oh, I like that. That's like, that's a great vision. I have to actually have an intention. I'm like, all right, I'm going to exercise six days a week. I'm going to, you know, take these long runs. I'm going to give time to this. I'm going to push myself beyond what's comfortable. But then I need means. Then I need like a schedule and an accountability partner and some technology to track my progress and a diet regimen. Like I need to actually have some practical things in order to become the kind of person for whom running 26.2 miles is hard, but it's inside my capacity. Right now, it's um, outside of my capacity. I can't do it. If I went out and tried to run 26.2 miles, I would die. Um, but mm-hmm. it's not because I don't have that potential in me. It's because I have to become that kind of a person. So obviously Paul uses the athletic metaphor so much for spiritual formation. So I think the same is true. We need means. So that's a long way of saying I'm just really trying anything that I put out. Um, I'm really trying to end it with means like this last Sunday sermon. I ended with a journaling exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, I just use Rollheiser's five things, the Paschal cycle of, you know, name your deaths, claim your births. And he has, a, he has a couple things, you know, it's just so beautiful. And I just did that. Like, here's a journaling exercise, you know, because I think it was a sermon on hope and grieving. But I think people right now need more than just a sermon. They need like, all right, mm-hmm. here, if you want to do it, it's all up to you. Go take an hour. Here's five questions to journal through. And so that you can process your grieving and really begin hoping in what God has for you. So I think our content has to be a little bit more experiential, a little bit more spiritual director ish, definitely less rah, rah. I don't think the rah, rah anthem thing is super helpful right now. I think like Hmm. helping people find spaces in solitude or in deep relationships where they can process their life before God and really helping people reflect, you know, Natius, if you look at nation spirituality, was it was passionate about the idea that we don't change from our experiences, we change when we reflect on our experiences. So all sorts of experiences pass through our life and our body and we honestly don't really change that much unless if we pause, slow down and reflect on the experience. Um, that's when it actually, and neurobiologically, I just sort of fascinating thing on the, the role that rumination plays in changing your body and and how you it's 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 a way of retraining your body to act differently next time when you say something stupid in a meeting and then you think about it for three days like i can't believe i said that stupid thing there's an unhealthy aspect of room a lot of people just like write rumination off like don't do it it makes you sad and some of that's wise but actually there's actually a role it plays in the way that god designed your body it's your brain forging new practicing new neural pathways So that next time you're in a situation like that, you don't run your mouth off and say something stupid. So that's, I think, you know, just that's the role of reflection. There's an unhealthy kind of rumination, but there's a healthy kind of reflection. And I want to help people kind of come into that space of reflection right now.
0: And this idea of moving people towards practices that are formative has really shaped really the whole structure of how you guys are functioning as Bridgetown. Um, When did you guys begin function with that in a more intentional way? Like it actually became an articulated uh, form that you guys were following.
2: Um, Yeah, we officially changed the kind of architecture of how we do church three and a half years ago. Obviously, it was, you know, probably about that same amount of time before that, when my thinking began to change, and the way of living began to change, we began to workshop and experiment and RD with our leadership group, with smaller communities. And frankly, I mean, everything we're doing is still very much R&D. It's very much research and development. And um, we saw a bunch of things that we want to workshop, workshop and attempt. And in fact, we're using the COVID-19 to actually start some of them, you know, because it's like the world is so immutable right now. It's a great time to experiment. Whatever we do is not going to last very long <laughs> anyway. So it's a great time to kind of experiment with different kind of models and paradigms of church and just really asking the question what models of church would be the most conducive to really helping um christ be formed in people really Mm -hmm. doing everything we can to create an environment um that's just really conducive to receive the spirit and the truth of jesus to change
0: leading a church through over the last three and a half years in this way what are some of the learnings that you pass on like what are some of the mistakes from maybe the first year or two that you look back and go, man, if I could warn people trying to get a congregation and a group of people and even a staff on board, what are some reflections you've got on that?
2: Um, in one sentence, I would say this. Leadership is about example and invitation, not coercion and control. Hmm. Can you unpack that-, that a little bit for us? Yeah. um, So the backstory to that is, again, control, the root issue of so much what's wrong with the human condition. I'm a a control freak or a recovering control freak or a control freak who's being healed by Jesus, however you want to say it. And so that's a real shadow side to my leadership is I can be Mm -hmm. idealistic, I can be controlling, I can coerce people toward what I think they need to do. And and sometimes I'm wrong, but sometimes I'm right. That's like the, that's the, um, the catch-22 of a parent, right? When you know what your child needs to do to grow and thrive, but they don't want to do it. And it's like, how much do you override their will? Uh, I was chatting to John Ortberg a while ago, and he was chatting about Dallas Willard's idea of how every person has a kingdom or a queendom. We have our, the range of our own effective will. We have the space starting with our mind and our body where what we want or where our will is done, you know, where what we want to happen happens. And he just had this great throwaway line. He said, you know, it's very, I was asking him, how do you do spiritual formation with groups of people, with people in general and groups of people, which very hard. And he said, you know, it's very hard to lead people without overriding their kingdom. Mm. And I just think there's a lot of truth. It's very hard to lead people actually to pastor people into Christ likeness without overriding their kingdom. Um, we recently got, uh, this is kind of embarrassing because of the privilege here, but before all of this hit, actually in January, we bought a Peloton, which was like, uh, which was really expensive. And I felt really weird buying it. And it's some of the best money we have ever spent. So Peloton, if you don't know, it's like a, it's a workout. It's like a nice workout bike, actually a spin bike, but it comes with like a, like an iPad kind of on it. And you can either live stream classes from New York, or we do mostly on demand. And it's basically the best spin instructors in the world. And these spin instructors are like one part, you know, high level elite athlete, one part like motivational speaker, self-help guru, one part like therapist. I mean, it's just (laughs) unreal. You're not getting a workout. You're getting a worldview and like a massive (laughs) emotional dose. And, you know, so much of it's just nonsense, just self-actualization nonsense. Some of it's great. Some Christians on there but I'm learning so much about how they motivate you. It's very different than how a pastor thinks because Mm. they all say like, I'm not here to be your best friend. I'm going to kick your butt. You're going to hate me, but I do it because I love you. And like, because they're, (laughs) they're athletes and they're trying to actually help you grow. They're not just trying to help you feel they're not chaplains. Like they're there to help you grow. They're trainers. Mm. And one of them the other day had this great line. He's like, I make suggestions you make decisions and i was like oh (laughs) i am learning i honestly feel like god brought peloton in my life to teach me how to teach people spiritual formation how to lead people i honestly think like i am learning so much from these secular totally like quasi hindu self-help secular people i'm learning so much about like the science of human motivation and all that to say I, i think that coercion and control which is what we attempted early on like Churches, Sundays should be secondary. Home communities should be first. So we're going to really lean heavy on people to get them into home communities. Spiritual formation should be first and all the other stuff of church programs should be second. We're going to just push really heavy for people to Sabbath and do silence and solitude and prayer and fasting. And it just... Every time I would try to lean on people and take them mm-hmm. somewhere they weren't ready to go, it would blow up in my face. It would have the opposite effect. It would just harden. Either they do it, but for religious reasons, and then it would just corrupt their own spirit, or, or they would just like reject it and throw it off and almost rebel against it. And I just learned the hard way, that's not loving or honoring mm-hmm. to people's human dignity. And one of the best ways we love people is we let them do things that we think they shouldn't do. Not like mm-hmm. I always know. It's a long way of saying i've just realized man um you know it's paul's whole thing uh follow me as i follow christ you know or follow my example as i follow the example of christ that's spiritual leadership you know it's example you live what you want to see in your people to the best of your current capacity in jesus and then you invite people to follow along the journey follow me as i follow christ follow my example as i paul said that like four times be imitators of me as i am an imitator of christ so I just think hmm. that is spiritual leadership. Scazzaro, you know, his line is, as the leaders go, so goes the church. And um, I think that's really well said. Um, hmm. That, you know, you, what God is doing in your own formation and that in the highest level of leaders in your church is likely what your church has the potential to rise to. Not, there's no guarantee but it's very unlikely that it will rise above that. So if there's unhealth and dysfunction and irritability and shadow side in you and your leaders, again, some of that's in all of us, but um, that's likely going to be churchwide. <laughs> you <know? laughs> w- w- weren't you the one, Jason? You, you had that great – tell me that story about um, – somebody said to you recently, like, you're the greatest threat to your church.
0: Oh, man.
2: Wasn't that you? Yeah. You were yeah, at, a, faith, no, it's you true. at a, a pastor's gathering and he said something like, You're the greatest blessing to your church or something. Yeah. The greatest oh, man, danger want... to your church is the greatest danger to your church is you. Isn't that what he said to you? I don't even remember who it yeah, was. Yeah, I want I want
0: to give credit to somebody and I, I can't remember, but I the way the idea is coming back into my memory is like
2: It was in uh, it was in Denver, right? At that church planning thing you were yeah, at?
0: Yeah, you know, I think it might have been it it okay, here's who spoke of that thing, Tim Mannon spoke john peacock it might have been oh it was john peacock from mission church in chicago outside chicago and uh he said a number of things and he did this whole bit he was like talking to church planners and he's like what's the biggest threat to your church plant he goes is it the devil i mean he doesn't want your church plant to be around he's like is it secular society i mean that's a, you know he named all these things that are like legitimate threats and he goes you're the biggest threat to your church plant.
2: <laughs> that's so true though
0: yeah Yeah, it's
2: terrifying. It's terrifying, but more more churches are ruined by pastors than by anything else I know of.
1: Mm. Mm.
2: So there's there's a there's a healthy sobriety that comes with that. Yeah. You know that I could be the spiritual gift to my church, or I could be its downfall. You know, gosh, God. So, man, why do we need so many, so much more? We got to lead in team. We got to lead grounded in relationships. We got to be aware of our shadow side. We have to be honest and open about our shadow side with the people that we lead to whatever degree is appropriate. We have to have accountability in check. We have to be grounded. We have to be patient and slow. We have to prioritize formation above all. And then we just have to invite people to come along for the journey. Hmm.
0: I shared with a few people and some listeners that you were going to be on the podcast. And a number of people asked questions. And this is super niche, it's not a super deep moment. A lot of people asked about book recommendations. I think it's because I know you, you take in a ton of books, but you also do a great job sharing it. It's like one of the best things about following you on social media is you'll, and you're, you're really honest as well. You're like, don't waste your time reading this or like, definitely read this. And, um, you'll be like, this is my sixth time reading it. So a couple book recommendation questions. Okay. Just, just for these listeners that want it. The first is, um, you know, when you think about your staff, what are the books that you're like, man, I want all of the people I'm working with. They've got to read these books.
2: Oh man, um, strengthening the soul of your leadership by Ruth Haley Barton uh, is one of the best leadership books I know. It's one that our staff comes back to on a regular basis. All the emotionally healthy spirituality, emotionally healthy church. All actually, I like the original the most. Emotionally healthy church. Most people now read emotionally healthy spirituality, which is great. But for church leaders, I still think the OG is the best emotionally healthy church is a must read. Then there's the emotionally healthy leader. So, I mean, all that stuff. I mean, Skazaro's work is just gold. Our staff goes around that mm. so much. Um, Willard's stuff, in particular for church leaders. Um, so, the problem with Willard is a couple of his books that are, that are, are, are the most helpful are the ones that are just onerous to read, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the one the, the Willard book that not a lot of people read that has had the greatest impact on our church and staff is The Spirit of the Disciplines by Willard, um, which is it's not an easy read. It's slow. It's boring. And I had to read it. I don't think I even started to understand it till the end of my second read through. Um, like I don't, I didn't really get it the first time and then the second time I started getting it and now it's like basically changed our entire model of church. Um, and then an easier entry point to Willard would be the Great Omission is the easiest way to get into his thing because it's, um, Great Omission isn't actually a full book. It's 50 pages and you can read the 50 pages and basically get the synopsis of his view of formation. And leadership, and then the rest of it's just like essays that got turned into chapters. And you can read them, you mm. can not read them, you can pick and choose. They're repetitive, they don't follow a linear path. So you can kind of just read the 50 pages, get oh, that's kind of Willard's basic take on discipleship, you know? Mm. And then Renovation of the Heart by Willard is really good. Um, then gosh, what else? Um there's one that's a really great introduction called The Relational Soul. That's an introduction to attachment theory which I've discovered and the role of small T trauma that in my work as a pastor, I'm realizing should be one of the first things mm. that we train in as pastors. And it's one of the last things we find out about. It's a really short, easy read by two Christian psychologist, and Cofield that um, helps give you a basic, you have to go far. If you want to get into it, you have to go read more, but um, gives you a basic way of navigating um, small T trauma or big T trauma and attachment stuff. That is, mm. I think just crucial for pastoral work. Okay, a couple more book
0: recommendation questions. Uh, yeah. this is, These legitimately came in, so I just love it. Uh, the other you're one was- You're chuckling
2: right now. I'm just <laughs> chuckling that this is, what,
0: this is what people like were like, I want to hear John Mark and all the stuff uh, about rest but, and slow down spirituality and, one, and all the classics.
2: This is thing is like a, a biblio doctor or whatever, like who, his job was like to make book recommendations. Like, I think you're ready for this one now. I'm like, how I do think, I get that job? Why am I a pastor? I need a b- biblio doctor. I want that job so bad.
0: It's like a dietitian for yes, literature for consumption.
1: Literature, please, Jesus.
0: Okay, the next one is a new Christian, someone just come to faith. What is the book or two you want to put in their hands early on? Hmm.
1: I don't know. In all honesty, I'm I'm actually working on that book right
2: now, because I haven't been able to find one that I feel great about recommending. So I'm actually working on one right now in that vein. So to start, gosh, maybe um, the book that played a huge role, I'm not sure if this is the right recommendation or not. But in early in my formation um especially early in my journey was the pursuit of god by aw tozer which is a short read Mm -hmm. and it's not a like how to follow jesus it's about like the heart posture of always wanting desiring and pursuing god um i think that just has framed my entire spiritual journey that one's huge honestly, I just read that book by our man, Daryl Johnson, experiencing the Trinity. I keep thinking of that. Mm -hmm. You can read it in one sitting. It's like 90 pages long. And it's just about like, how do you participate in the inner life of the Trinity of love like that? Mm -hmm. That's it, Mm -hmm. man. I think like I'm working on a, a, and I think we had chatted about maybe collaborating on this, which I really want to do, but I'm working on like a post alpha kind of, for a new follower of Jesus follower of Jesus, like basic intro kind of discipleship formation. This is how you get going following yeah. Jesus course that we want to run as part of our practicing the way stuff at the church. It'll be a while before it's out, but I'm working on it now. And the first three weeks are all on Trinitarian theology. Like it mm-hmm. ends with practices and spiritual disciplines that the course will, but it just starts with like the idea that what you think about God is the most important thing about you and you become like your vision of God or for better or worse. So we're just like Going through Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinitarian community of love, Trinitarian community of joy, Trinitarian community of peace. You know what I mean? Self-giving, like all generativity, like all of that. Like, man, what if we could just capture young believers' minds before we get, I mean, I'm super passionate about here's the disciplines and here's the ethics of the kingdom and the Sermon on the Mount. What if we could capture people's minds with the inner nature and life of God himself Mm. and let people begin through practices and prayer and contemplative stuff to experience and enter into that inner life of the Trinity, that like that seems like that would be pretty amazing. Mm, I love that. Okay, last Another book. good one for a new believer oh, yeah, go would, be, for it. would be Life Without Lack, which was the last, it was published posthumously. It, it says it's by Dallas Willard, but he didn't actually write it. It was based on transcripts or recordings of a Sunday school class that he gave, so it's way easier to read than his other stuff. Mm -hmm. And at the end, it's all in Psalm 23. And at the end, he has this killer chapter that I plan to rip off one day. It's called something like Spend the Day with Jesus. And it walks you through from when you go to bed at night to sundown on the following day, how you practice the presence of God. And um, that's how I'm going to end my little book that I'm working on for a new believer. And in the meantime, his is way better. (laughs) Well, that's
0: a perfect transition because the other book question was what books are in your heart or mind to write? What are the, what are the books that are in you that you're hoping in your lifetime you're going to be able to write?
2: Oh, well, um, I, my next book's already written. It'll come out in a bit and it's, it's on a bunch of controversial stuff, but the, the real body of work that is in my heart, my life. And I want to kind of spend the next 10 or 15 years working on is I want to do like a, um, anthology, like a series that's like, uh, probably five to seven books long. And then with another 10, like shorter self published books that go with it all on spiritual formation. So the Mm. first one will be this book on basically what does it mean to be an apprentice or a follower of Jesus that you'd like hand to somebody post alpha or brand new to Jesus or been around the church for a long time. But like, what's the difference between being a Christian and following the way of Jesus. Then I want to write like a, a book on abiding, like kind of practicing the presence of God, be with Jesus. Then I want to write a book on be, become like Jesus. That'll be like the thickest one I probably will ever write, all on formation, psychology, how do we change, dealing with our past, inner healing, the role of trauma, attachment theory, discovering our unique identity, all of that stuff. And then I want to write something on kind of do what Jesus would do. And then I want to write thing on, um, on kind of naming your season of life and stage of apprenticeship mm. and dark night of the soul And then I want to write a short, I want to create like practices um, that would include each like a short little book on each of the major practices. So like fasting and silence and solitude and Sabbath and prayer, just like little easy to read, probably self-published books where you could, along with teaching and stuff where you're like, oh, I've never done fasting before. Let me grab my church or a small group or my spouse or my best buddy. And let's go through this thing over the next couple of weeks and start practicing fasting so I think that's, oh, I, I that's love it. Beyond that, I mean, I have ideas, but I don't know. That's, that's the next 10 or 15 years. I think is that, uh, I thanks just, for sharing that. I want to bring formation into local churches and post-Christian contexts.
0: Mm, I love that. Well, before I kind of ask our last question, I just want to thank you, man, for writing and teaching the way you do and making it available to us. It's been such a gift to me and so many leaders. And um, yeah, your voice is just so important right now. So thanks for continuing to write and craft and be thoughtful about it.
2: That's really kind, man. It's such an honor. I'm grateful that anybody would read or listen.
0: It's so fun. Okay, last kind of thought, and it's, um, it might just be for me, uh, but I feel like we're recording this just after Easter. And for a lot of pastors, it was like a four-week sprint or six week sprint even to get online and repivot and rethink what we're doing and making yeah. tough staffing decisions and just, and there's an adrenaline run and I'm feeling this like post Easter almost crash. I'm almost embarrassed about just how much it's affecting me. And I think a lot of other pastors are, are just feeling that and just wanted yeah. to give you a moment just to speak to how do we come down off moments like that and how do we find rest in the midst of it, I just think a lot of pastors and leaders are tired. Yes. And I uh, just wanted to almost let you invite pastors to a place of rest in this time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think not just invite, I think it's actually really important that we rest because if right now we start reimagining our organizations, we're going to do it from a place of anxiety, exhaustion, fear, grasping for control. Those are not good inner postures to basically uh, reorchestrate the next year or two of our churches based from that inner place. You know, it's just not you don't want to do that. So I think, you know, just at a generic leadership level, whether it's a church or a small business, you kind of have three phases we have to go through. Phase one is kind of crisis managed, like triage crisis management. Oh, my gosh. That was like the first week of like what the heck i mean we had so little warning it was not on our radar i was halfway through writing my sermon for sunday on thursday at noon when i turned on my phone and found out that late the night before uh they'd banned all gatherings over 250 people and we couldn't do church that weekend you know like what that was a thursday afternoon you know so that's like just crisis management phase two is like basically pivoting your organization or your church like so it's what you just said like how do we get online do we do a podcast what's our rule of life what's church going to look like for this you know stay home thing which is likely going to be at least three months or whatever like okay and then phase three is reimagining kind of what is re-entry going to look like especially in what will likely be a staggered scenario that could be over six months could be over two or three years we don't know yet and it's really hard And, um, and how do we want to come back? Do we just want to come back and do the same things or do we want to come back differently? You know, what's going to change? What's our staffing going to look like? All of that. And I think there is a necessary um, break that needs to happen between phase two and phase three. Mm -hmm. I think we're all, we're all through phase two. We've done crisis management. We've pivoted our churches to the best of our ability and we're still a ways out. I'm not sure exactly when this podcast will go live, but we're still a ways out before any semblance of return to kind of business as usual. So I think actually, right now, what we made the decision as soon as we got through Easter, we just decided we're going to take three weeks and we're just going to rest. So we have a whole list mm-hmm. of problems that we've got to work on as elders, and they're all waiting for an elders meeting uh, next week. You know, like we, we're meeting, we're praying, we're just doing spiritual direction. We're pastoring our people. We're still, you know, we're still very present. But we're not, we're intentional. And our mind can't help but strategize. But um, we're intentionally not having those conversations yet because we don't want to have them Mm. out of a place of anxiety, but out of a place of possibility. And so I think it's more important now than ever to rest. I mean, imagine, like, if you just played, like, if you're an athlete, like, I'm not a sports guy, but you just played, like, one of the most intense games of your life you don't then go into the next, like you, then the first thing that you need to do is rest. You know, Mm -hmm. I read a book on Olympians recently that said what separates the best from the really good at the Olympic or professional athlete level is not how hard they train, but how hard they rest. And it said that at that level, once you get to the level of professional athlete, they all basically train the same amount. So it's not that, not the best train more. It's actually the main difference is the best of the best are r- ruthless about how hard they rest and how they care for their mm. body and their spirit and their emotional condition, how seriously they take their off time, That, like, that's what separates the true premium from just the professionals. And I think there's something to that. I've been around a few really high-level leaders, and I don't know them crazy well, but I've, I tend to be shocked by how relaxed some of them are. And it's mm-hmm. like some of them are the type A crazy people working insane hours that mostly end up in a news feed for some scandal at some point. But some of the ones that flourish and thrive and lead long term, they're just half- healthy, happy people that actually really know how to delegate and lead from their strengths and know how to rest. So none mm-hmm. of us are, you know, maybe if you're listening, but I'm not one of those people. But I think there is a principle there where rest is more important now, not less. Hmm. sabbath is more important now than ever because it's how we remind ourselves that we're not running the universe that we're not in control that god is and our job is to delight and give thanks and live one day at a time
0: hmm. well i'm so thankful that you make time to be with us today and look forward to chatting more about all these things and so grateful for all that you would have to say and do man grateful for you Well, before we end today's episode, I just want to thank John Mark for spending time with us. I just love that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm sure you did. And we've got highlights from our conversation. We have a PDF of all of his book recommendations. We've got video clips. We've got the video from his time with us in Vancouver, the lecture he gave to a room of leaders where he covered some of the themes we discussed in the podcast and even went deeper in that idea of that, our transforming self in leadership. And so all of that is available on our blog at ccln.ca. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it so much if you give it a quick review or share. We're 10 episodes into this new season and every bit of your engagement means a lot to us as we grow the audience and help more and more pastors join in this conversation across Canada and around the world. And before we sign off, I wanna let you know about who's with us next week. We've got Kim Moran. She's a lead pastor of Abbotsford Pentecostal Assembly in British Columbia, along with her husband, Clark. She's an incredible visionary leader. Her story is, is just so amazing. I don't want to give it away, but the kind of adversity that she has gone through while transitioning a church that has a long history in Abbotsford and what they're experiencing at APA in Abbotsford is just absolutely incredible, real growth, uh, dynamic reach in the city. And we talk a lot about these things next week. So stay tuned for that. And we can make this podcast happen every week because of some amazing people that love pastors and love leaders and love the local church. And one of those partners is Briarcrest College and Seminary. Briarcrest has been developing leaders for the church for the last 85 years. Every year, hundreds of young adults choose Briarcrest. And what they find is this intentional discipleship community that helps them grow in their faith and find deep grounding for a life of impact. Despite this pandemic, online or on campus, this fall, they're going forward. And so you can find out more information about what they offer and all their programs online. And this is what I do know about Broadcrest. They love the local church. And we're so, so grateful for the work they do and for helping us make the work of the Canadian Church Leaders Network happen. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time.